Genesis 49. We'll pick up in verse 29, work our way to Genesis 50 and verse 14. It's one passage there this week and next week. I think next week will be our final Sunday in the first book of God's holy word. Wow. We should have a party (laughs) next week. Someone arranged that. (laughs) In 2008, oh, let's pray. Holy cow. If I ever start a sermon again and I haven't prayed, you stop me right away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are enthroned. To you we bow our hearts. This morning we bow our minds and wills to you. And we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit, whom you have sent to be our comforter to guide us into all truth, to convict us of all sin. And Lord, your, your spirit is the power, the person, the work that enables us to look at your word and meet with you, Jesus, our Savior. So minister to us by your spirit that we would meet with you today. Amen. Amen. There. 2008, Mark Ashton, he was the vicar at St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge, England. He was diagnosed with inoperable cancer and was given about a year to live. Because of his strong commitment to Jesus Christ, his faith in Jesus Christ, Mark went through that year-long journey with a ton of joy. People described him as happy and poised. Confident. In fact, he was so confident it unnerved people around him. It kind of caught them off guard. People just couldn't understand how this guy, Mark, walked with so much joy and peace when the hope of prolonged earthly life was taken away from him. And yet he did. In his book, On My Way to Heaven, Mark tells of a time when he told his hairdresser of his situation. And he says in his book, after he spoke to her about his impending death, he said, quote, I couldn't get another word out of her for the rest of the haircut, end quote. So this secular progressive woman was so undone by the thought that the person she's cutting his hair is going to die soon. She couldn't get another word out. Leading Mark to write this, quote, our age is devoid of hope, so devoid of hope in the face of death that the the topic has become unmentionable. Today we have to address what our culture would call a morbid topic. Morbid means discomforting, a subject that's discomforting, disturbing, or unpleasant. But in our passage, 14 times we see the word that's translated burial, buried, or bury. So what are we looking at today? Death. Death, a funeral. The death of an Old Testament saint. And so we're going to talk about death. Death is something that our culture does not want to think about, doesn't want to accept. I mean, your neighbors, they know that it's on the horizon, but they live as if it will never meet them. They're not preparing for death. They don't want to prepare for death. 
they don't want to think about death, so they live their lives really trying to reject the reality of death. It is the unmentionable of our time. And our current secular, individualistic, pleasure-driven, the word is hedonistic culture, death is to be feared above all because it only death can halt your experience of whatever you want to experience. Death puts a stop to, your, to the hedonistic pleasure. It ends it. The only thing, it puts an end to it. So death is the present fear in the hearts of many. We saw this in 2020 when death was put in the face of everyone when this illness came around and panic. Nobody wants to think about death. And so there's this great fear. And how is the world coping with the fear? How are they handling this impending doom? Well, our world, if you look into it as I did, is reverting back to this ancient philosopher's idea. His name was Epicurus. And he had this idea. He was an early nihilist, actually lived before Jesus. So you're talking B.C. He's a philosopher, and he believed that when you die, that's the cessation of your existence. You cease to exist when you die. And so his word of encouragement to people in his time was, listen, you're not really going to experience death. You won't be there. You'll be gone. And so really you don't need to fear it because you won't experience it. And that is what psychologists are encouraging people with today. You won't experience death. Yeah, you have to actually die, but that time after your death, it's nothing. So don't, don't worry about it. You won't even know it's happening to you. There's a problem, though, with this line of thinking. Here's the problem. It's that where transcendence has been rejected, and all that there is to know and experience is in this world as you know it right now, death not only will end your existence, but it also kills your meaning for living today. Trek with me here. Death becomes the great uh, enemy to the things that our world loves, like identity and meaning and value and purpose. If death brings everything to nothing, then why does anything matter at all? Why does pleasure matter? Why does raising a family matter? Why own a house? Why, why continue to live if death ends everything and nothing has a future? It's hard to eat and drink and be merry when the future is so grim. And really, that's what the culture is wrestling with. Okay, you're telling me I'm not going to experience this, but I'm still really scared about it. So what are we to do? You see, we are, we are with Mark Ashton. Though he was told, you're going to die in this many months, we know we face the same destiny. And the world says to you, ignore death and try to just live for today. The word of God's the word of God says, however, live today to make ready for your death. Medieval theologian Thomas Kempis once wrote, Happy and wise is he who now strives to be such in life as he wishes to be found at death. 
And he was echoing the poet Moses. For Moses wrote Psalm 90 and said, Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's wise to reflect on the reality of our our mortality in these bodies. What I want to show you, mortal man, is how to live today to make ready for your death. How to live wisely each day so that when that final day comes, you are found right. You're ready, like Mark Ashton. So look at Genesis 49. We're going to run through this passage. Then he, that's Jacob, commanded them, that's his children, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, and the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You'll, you see that word command, right? Very beginning of the passage, verse 29, command. That word actually ties the whole passage together. That's how we know from verse 29 to verse 14 in chapter 50 is one passage. It's this word command. In verse 29, Jacob, he's sitting up in his deathbed. Do you remember when he sat up? When was that? When are we told he sat up? That's, yeah, he laid down. But when did he take a... He lifted himself up out of his bed and sat down. Do you remember? Yeah, when Joseph came in with his children, we're told he sat up. And that whole... It's been going... We've studied it now for three weeks, but it's one moment, one moment in time with Jacob sitting up in his bed. And he set up to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, to bless the children, and now he's sitting up on the edge of his bed to command his children. So you see the word again in verse 33. When he finished commanding them, he drew up his feet. You'll see it in chapter 50, verse 12, when we're told that the children did all he commanded them to do. So that's how we know There's the passage. That makes sense? Okay. Jacob tells his sons with one of his last breaths, his last words, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that Abraham bought, that he made a burying place. Gathered is an idiom for dying. It's used throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament for death. It usually says, never mind, Jacob needs his sons to gather him up after he dies and carry him to a burying place. That's the idea. Pick me up and take me to where I'm telling. So the command is, here's like a summary of the command. Don't bury me in Canaan or in Egypt. Bury me in Canaan. That's the command. He wants to go back to Canaan. So after finishing the command, it says Jacob drew up his feet. That's a very rare phrase in the Old Testament. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. Typically, you'll see that word breathed his last several times throughout the Old Testament. Abraham breathed his last, but then it says, and he died. Isaac 
breathed his last, and then he died. Here it says he breathed his last, and what? Gathered to his people. That's important. Here's what I want to say at this point. As much as the secular, progressive culture that tells us God is not real, wants us to believe that death is the end, that nothing beyond death, the, whole, the scriptures leave us no room to think that. From the Old to the New Testament, we find that by God's sovereign power, existence doesn't end. Existence continues even though we die, even though our bodies die. Here we're said that Jacob is gathered to his people. Paul might say, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20, might say he was asleep. Even in the Old Testament, death doesn't get the final word. Enoch and Elijah both skipped death. They're brought to God. God has power over death. And if he chooses, you get to skip it. Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. God has power over death. Psalm 16 says that God's people will have eternal presence and God's eternal life in God's presence, eternal joy. Psalm 17 and 75 teach us that death does not steal God's people from him. Death doesn't win. Psalm 23 teaches us that God's people will dwell with him forever. So death is not the end. Death doesn't get the final word. So Jacob, notice, Jacob, not Jacob's bones, not Jacob's body, not Jacob's memory. Jacob is gathered to his people. And then, after he dies, Joseph takes the lead to make sure the command was followed. Look at verse 1, chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Remember, not many chapters ago, Jacob came to town and Joseph saw him and fell on his neck and wept and kissed him. Do you remember that? Those are tears of joy. Now he falls on his father's face and he weeps and kisses his father. Do you remember what God told Jacob? Jacob is afraid to go into Egypt. He's an old dude. He's leaving the promised land. God has called him to Egypt. He's afraid. What does God tell Jacob to encourage him? Do you remember something about Joseph and the eyes and the closing of the eyes? Joseph will close your eyes. Yes, so you'll be with your son. Even when you die, your son that you love will be there with you. And here's that fulfillment of that promise. He falls on his face. Even today, the Hebrews, Jewish people, they, they make sure it's, even if your eyes are closed, they'll still push your eyes down. It's a part of their tradition and their culture. Joseph has his father embalmed, more than likely, so he can make the journey up to Canaan without decay. 
not going to get into embalming. It's a gross and long process. It takes 40 days. It's also, uh, the 40 days is a religious ceremony in the Egyptian culture. But then we're told, told in total, the Egyptians wept for Abraham, or Abraham, wept for Jacob 70 days. So that's 40 days for embalming, 30 more days for weeping, and a total of 70. How interesting that the Egyptians would weep for this obscure, nomadic shepherd who just came into their land and was, and they weep for him. We know according to Jew, or Egyptian historians that 70, 72 days was the prescribed time of mourning for Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, dies, 70 or 72 days of mourning. This is a big deal. Jacob, the people of Egypt, weeping for him. From verses 4 through 6, Joseph goes and gets permission from Pharaoh to bury his dad. He says he needs to do it because of an oath he took, probably referring to the command. He took an oath to do this. And he says something very interesting in verse 5. Look down at it. My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. That's more info than we found in 49, right? He says, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. So it's a little bit more information, but we see that Jacob, we know he visited that site to do what? To bury his wife, Leah. He buried her there. But while he was there, some of you have been to your own grave sites, right? Maybe, where you've said, I'll pick this spot. That's what Jacob did. He went to the cave, and more than likely, he carved a spot out of the stone and said, okay, this is where I will rest. I choose my words carefully. This is where I will rest. He prepared that. And so when Jacob is talking to Pharaoh through a messenger, he says, or I'm sorry, Joseph is talking to Pharaoh. He brings up this idea, God, or Jacob has prepared a place already. Why would that be important to Pharaoh? He's pretty obsessive about his own tomb, right? We've seen the pyramids. And so Pharaoh gets it. Go. He's going to come back. Verses 7 to 12. Tell us about the great, this really magnificent funeral processional. Egyptian servants and elders go along. All the household of Joseph goes, and the brothers go with him. Even chariots and soldiers went along, a very great company. When they arrived at Atad, they paused for seven more days of mourning. This would have been in the Jewish custom. Jewish people still mourn seven days when someone passes away. The mourning would have been more than weeping. It would have been a visible mourning. People in torn clothes, sitting in ashes, wearing sackcloth, taking postures of sorrow. We know this because the text tells us in verse 11, the Canaanites saw the mourning. They saw the sadness. Not only heard it, they saw it. It had such an impression on them, they renamed the place. But then after seven days of mourning, Jacob was buried in Abraham's tomb in the land of Canaan. The sons did for him as was commanded them. Verse 14, Joseph returns home with the whole entourage. Okay, we've run through the passage with some speed. I left some details. We didn't cover everything, 
But we began this morning talking about how we can live today making ready for our death. Death is coming, and to have a wise heart, you need to live aware of that truth. And I believe as we look here in Genesis, we can learn how to number our days. We can learn how to live today as we want to be found on the day of our death. Just like Mark Ashton. When we see Jacob sitting up in his deathbed, here, beginning in 48 into 50, we do not get the impression that he was scared of his destiny. We do not get the feeling that he was unprepared. In fact, he was very prepared. He had blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. He had prophesied over his children. He had commanded them what to do. He had, years in the past, had prepared a place for his body to be laid. He is prepared. John Calvin said, quote, It is as if the aged saint gave directions about the disposal of his body, as easily as healthy and vigorous men compose themselves for sleep. This was a man ready to die. How? How did he greet death with confidence? One word. Faith. He walked every day in faith so that on the day of his death, he was found in faith. In Hebrews 11, the author makes a list of Old Testament saints who exemplified faith in God by their actions. Abel makes the list because by faith, he made a pleasing sacrifice to God. Noah makes the list because by faith, he built a huge boat. Abraham makes the list because by faith, he obeyed God even when it didn't make sense. Jacob makes the list as well. Why do you think, don't look ahead, don't look at Hebrews 11, maybe you already know, but why does Jacob make the list? What was the moment of faith that the author of Hebrews picks? Was it when Jacob wrestled with God, he refused to let go because in faith he knew he needed God to bless him? Was it because by faith he journeyed from Haran all the way back to the promised land, even when he knew it was going to be dangerous? Was it by faith that he ran to Bethel and worshipped God when his family was in crisis? How about was it by faith that when he was really old, he actually left the promised land to follow God? The author of Hebrews could have picked any one of those moments of faith in Jacob's life. But here's what it says in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It was the moment of Jacob's death that inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews said, this is the moment of faith. Yes, the moment when he blessed Joseph and sons, Joseph's sons, but the entirety of the deathbed experience. For by faith he greeted death, sitting up in his bed, over his staff, worshiping God. In his last breaths, worshiping God, trusting God, 
knowing you get the last word, God. And how do we know that he, it's faith that guided him toward the grave? Because of the specific place where he told his children to bury him. Verses 29 to 32, take me to the field, Machpelah, in the land of the Hittites, the place Abraham bought, put me there, only there. And then in chapter 50, verse 5, Jacob, Joseph says, I got to go to Canaan to bury my father. Then in verse 13, it tells us again, very specific, Machpelah, that's where he was buried, in the cave that Abraham bought as a gravesite. that's where he went. This, stick with me, fight against the straying mind. Don't worry about what's for lunch. Listen, where was the first piece of land the people of God ever owned in the promised land? A grave, a tomb in the land of the Hittites. Hermit Geese, he's a, German theologian, he said, quote, life in the land first becomes possible through a grave. Through a grave, a group puts down roots in the land, end quote. By asking the sons to gather him up and bring him to that tomb, Jacob is putting his faith in the reality that one day his descendants will possess the land and that gravesite will blossom into the promised land. But more than that, Jacob has faith that one day, even though he is dying, he too, he himself will inherit a promised land. The book of Hebrews says this land, this hope was a better country, a heavenly one, built by God's own hands. Jacob really believed this isn't the end. So you need to gather me up and put me in this resting place because someday I will walk in the land with God. That's what Jacob believed. Remember when Jesus is questioned by the Sadducees in Mark 12 about the resurrection? And he says, listen, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this, this man who limped with God throughout his life Going to the grave leaves a testimony to the watching world of faith in God. All the Egyptians weep for him. Why? Well, because Joseph had been their redeemer, their savior. And so they, they know Joseph and they know the sorrow. So they've heard of Jacob and they weep 70 days for him. When he goes to Canaan, everyone, the Canaanites are like, man, this guy. And they renamed the place after him. And he also left a testimony for his children. The son, his son Joseph is soon going to die. And he says the same things. Listen, like my dad, you got to take me out of here. Bury me in Canaan. One day the Canaanites are going to meet Israel again. But not a man dead, a whole nation that will conquer them because of their sins against God. And they will take the land. This is the testimony of Jacob. Genesis, we're, we're coming to the end. And look at this connection at the end of Genesis. The beginning of God's story, the beginning of our story, the beginning of the story that we're a part of, it begins with 
life and light and order and beauty and eternal life. God provides for Adam and Eve forever life by his presence and the sacrament of the tree of life. And then Genesis ends with the death of a saint and two funerals. Why? Because sin has invaded God's story through our decisions to reject God and rebel against him in his created order. Sin is whenever we try to find life outside of God. When we try to elevate ourselves to Godhood and say, I'll take care of it. Or or when we try to find life by worshiping created things rather than the creator. Or, Or when we try to live for only the temporal and find life only in the temporal rather than trusting in the transcendent sovereign God. And we run from God and we sin against God. And the punishment for our sin, for the sins against the holy God is death. God told Adam and Eve that in the beginning. Listen, if you seek something else for life, if you try to go somewhere else other than me, if you disobey what I say, you will die. Romans 6, Paul says, uh, the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, death is the sting of sin. Death is the destiny of every sinner. But according to Paul, there's freedom from the sting. And according to Paul, there's a new gift in place of death. See, Jacob, stay with me. He not only believed that he would walk in the land of promise, but he believed he would do that because he trusted God would destroy the power of death. He believed that someday an Israelite king would ascend to a throne and have dominion over the power of sin and death and would vanquish sin and so free us from the trap of death. That is what Jacob believed. In Hebrews, it says, all these, talking about the patriarchs, though commended through their faith, did not receive the promise. Instead, they were looking beyond themselves for a fulfillment of the promise, looking beyond the grave to uh, the seed of Israel that would defeat sin. It says, They were looking, they didn't know this, but they were looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Only Jesus could defeat the power of sin and so free us from death. How is it that Jesus defeated our sin? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Dane Ortland says simply, the joy was seeing his people forgiven. That's why Jesus went to the cross. The cross was the altar on which the great high priest and the true sacrificial lamb would lay down his life to make the perfect sacrifice to forgive the sins of his people, of those who put faith in him. The cross was the tree of death that lifted the curse and became the new tree of life. For on the cross of Christ, the true Jacob, the sinless Jacob, who is God, the son of God, was led in a funeral procession. But unlike Jacob, Jesus had been abandoned. His friends had left him. The Israelite elders in the world did not gather to mourn him, but to mock him. But looking on was one Joseph of Arimathea. 
And he, like the Joseph before him, ensured that the body of Jesus received a proper burial and a tomb fit for the king. But this grave would become a broken grave. This grave would be the root from which would spring life. For in this grave, Jesus took all the sin, all the shame that comes with sin, all the guilt that comes with sin, all the brokenness and despair and hopelessness that comes with sin, and Jesus buried in the grave for all who would put faith in his person and work. And when Jesus was raised from the grave, the promise of life through redemption was fulfilled, and all the saints of old finally found the object of their faith, Jesus Christ. So Jacob lived his life making ready for death. How? He walked with what? Faith. Let's say, just try it again. So I know that you heard something I said. He walked with faith. faith. He trusted in God, not himself. He believed that God had the word, not him. He looked to God, nothing he had done. He walked with faith. And so when Jacob drew up his feet and breathed his last, the verse does not say, and he died. That's the typical phrase. He breathed his last and died. But Victor Hamilton points out the emphasis in chapter 49 is not on death, but on being joined together with the saints to await the fulfillment of promise. It's so interesting this week, I read a book called On Death and Finding God by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller passed away on Friday morning. And in this book on death, Keller shared this story. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia when his wife, only in her late 30s, died of cancer leaving him four, with four children under the age of 12. When driving with his children to the funeral, a large truck pulled past them in the left lane, casting a shadow over them. Barnhouse asked his children in the car, would you rather be run over by the truck or the shadow of the truck? His 11-year-old answered, well, the shadow, of course. The father concluded, telling his children, well, that's what has happened to your mother. Only the shadow of death has passed over her because death itself ran over Jesus. And this is what happened to Jacob. This is what happens to you and I who live with faith in Jesus. When death comes, it is but a shadow because Christ has taken death in our place. And so this is the gospel. Like Tim Keller always said, we are more sinful than we ever dared imagine, but we are more loved than we ever dared dream. <clears throat> to make ready for your death then, to approach death with poise and confidence, hope, you must walk today in faith. Never looking to your own works or merits to say, yeah, I'm right and ready for death, but looking to Jesus and his works and trusting in him. For when we walk today in faith, we will be found in faith at our death. And this is the only way to greet death with and say, you are but a shadow. I'm going to give you three quick things to take away from this sermon, from this passage, and apply into your life really fast. Just give me one more minute. The first suggestion I have for you to walk with faith today, like Jacob, 
is to unite yourself with the saints who came before you. The cloud of witness that surrounds you. That's why Jacob said, put me in the grave with them. I want to be known as associated with them and the God who was their God. I'm with them. And so how can we say, I'm with them, the saints who have come before us and who are in the presence of Jesus today? Well, my encouragement to you would be to, here's just real practical. Recite the creeds, know the creeds, love the creeds, trust the creeds, because that ties us to the faith that came before us. It is the, that is the faith of the saints who are walking with Jesus today in glory. Second, we must be known in this world as those who honor the dead. Jacob, Jacob was gathered. Not his body, not his bones, not just his flesh. Jacob was gathered. The way we treat our dead and the way we mourn with hope can be a testimony to the world around us. So how about this? Think about your funeral. What do you want it to look like? How do you want it to be a testimony to the glory of God? Tell that to your loved ones. Keep preaching Jesus even after you die. Finally, know the world around you is paralyzed by fear. A fear of death. They try to ignore it. They try to reject it. They claim they won't experience it, but they will. And to experience death without faith in Christ is way worse than experiencing death. But you have a liberating message of hope. Hebrews 2 says it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have the gospel that frees people from a fear of death. So preach that. Let's pray. God, we commend this time to you and we ask that where it has been truthful, you would cause fruit to grow and bear in our hearts that where I missed something, you would help it fall away. And in all, I pray that we'd be spurred on to faith in Jesus Christ, to cling to him, to cling to the faith once delivered to the apostles, and to walk like Jacob before us, trusting in the founder and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray.